Arizona Sports, the home of Phoenix Suns basketball. Suns playoff coverage presented by Michelob Ultra. Wolf and Luke talk Suns Nuggets now. All right, hour number two of the show live from the Auction Community Studios. Wolf, this um, segment was inevitable after the way things played out on Saturday. So, again, I will give this disclaimer. I don't, I do my best to not pile on DA, and I don't think that they lost the game on Saturday because of DA. I mean, that was, that was a pretty, <laughs> it was a pretty across the board effort to lose the game the way they lost the game to Denver. Agreed. But uh, D.A. was not a game changer for the Suns. And I don't even really care about Saturday anymore. It's more going forward. You know, we talked about this a lot last week. If you're going to beat Denver, and Denver's at full strength, and Jokic is having another MVP caliber season, DeAndre Ayton's going to have to play the way he did in the playoffs two years ago against Denver. That's that's how they're going to win. He's one of your, your core four pieces right now. You need him to play well. He did not play well on Saturday. And you can have a bad game. And I get that when D.A. has a bad game, it gets completely blown up and everybody's freaking out. But you've built this team that is an NBA title contender that in a lot of ways seems immune to most teams. I don't know if they can beat Denver if D.A. doesn't get going. No, I I totally agree with your assessment. I don't think there's a lot of people out there that believe the Phoenix Suns can beat Denver without DeAndre Ayton and a very aggressive DeAndre Ayton. Um, it's time to tell the truth. It really is. There's no reason to panic right now. You just need to tell the truth. This is a situation where DA needs somebody to walk up to him, look him dead in the eye, and say, what are you doing? I I talk about the accountability that you need player to player. It's not just the coach. The coach can't sit there and yell and scream. The coach can't even walk up and approach him. I'm saying to me, who's got the bigger impact? A player walking up to him and saying, what are you doing? I want to know who that player is inside of that locker room. Who is that player who still has that kind of relationship with D.A.? I wonder, because when you have a mad king, not an old king, not a young king, but a mad king, a guy who's the most talented player inside your locker room, who is the most inconsistent player inside your locker room, that creates a lot of tension a lot of the time. And I've talked about it for years, literally, with D.A. So I wonder who that guy is who can do it. Well, is it Kevin Durant? I feel like Kevin Durant can, if anybody can. I, You know, you never know. Has D.A. I don't, not that I think D.A.'s tuned out Chris Paul, but if you're talking about who can get the message through to him, I feel like more, more so Kevin Durant than anybody. Maybe Devin Booker. Uh, everybody, I would assume, has seen the clip that's been circulating around social media for the last 48 hours where Kevin Durant is fighting with Jokic over and over and over again for a rebound and DA's standing out of bounds just watching. He's just standing out of bounds under the hoop watching. There's there's no other way to describe it. Like all all the times that people have gotten on DA for okay, play with more force, like Monty Williams says, yes. or do this or move your feet or yes. you know, get in better position. This this was the extreme of it and it's in the middle of a playoff game where again, you 
you can get past the Clippers if DA is just kind of in and out. You can't get past Denver if DA is in and out because they have Nikola Jokic. You're not going to be able to beat him if he doesn't wake up. So when you see DA standing there out of bounds for like five seconds, I don't think I'm exaggerating. No, I'm watching it right now. Then he jumps back in bounds and does nothing when he jumps back in bounds. What? What kind of damage do you think that does to his teammates when they all sit around and watch that? See, you if know, it's a again, one-time thing, it's but this was the extreme, and it's it's been his reputation. And, and here's here's the thing that bothers me, Basin Onions, because this is coming off a legitimate question that was asked DeAndre last week about his motor. Remember that. Remember yeah. when you played that right there about his motor, and what did he do? He just obfuscation, immediately shut the guy down, and made it look like you got to be kidding me. Yeah, I don't know what that is, man. Yeah. The motor, come on. I play both ends of the floor. My name is Dominating. I carry, uh, I anchor the Phoenix Suns on both ends of the floor. Motor, really? You want to talk about the motor, man? Nope, I run on Tesla battery. Yeah, there you go. Right that looked there. like triple A battery. You know, for me right there, it's it's delusional. It is. Can I just say it? To to sit there and say my motor, you're gonna talk about my motor. I'm I'm dominating. That that's your argument. That's what you say to somebody who asks a legitimate question about your force and your urgency, your physicality. That's what his answer was, and that's the reason why D.A. has got to tell the truth about himself. And it's interesting that D.A. also said after this game, in regard to Game 2 tonight, he said, quote, we are going to be a completely different team next game. How do you know that, D.A.? How, how do you know that? We are going to be a completely different team next game. Well, I would say this, a lot of times when D.A. feels called out, he does respond with a much better game. And he may be saying we're going to be a completely different team. To me, if he's completely different, they will be a completely different team. And that's exactly why I said that, is because he knows. Why why can you not recognize this in game one? Why does it take what happened in game one? To actually get you to say, we're going to be a completely different team. How do you know you're going to be a completely different team, D.A.? Because you know you're going to be a completely different player in Game 2 than you were Game 1. How do you know that? And, and why? I, I, I love the guy. I really do. And I think there's a ton of talent that is there, that is there right now. But this is just further confirmation, once again, that he's a mad king. And the impact he has on his teammates, I just wonder how that is. If this does not go well in the postseason this year, and you're the first one who actually said this, if this does not go well, Luke, I don't see him coming back. Well, you know it's going to be a conversation. that, And, and hopefully this just goes well, and we don't have to have that conversation. But if the Suns bow... Like, let's just say this series continues the way it's going, and the Suns lose to Denver, and D.A. doesn't play well. There, 
You didn't invest all this in Kevin Durant and this money in this team and this draft capital to just sit around and be like, well, we'll run it again next year. We'll just run the same thing back next year. Maybe that's what you should do, but doesn't it feel like they would they would try to make some changes? And again, you're back to where you were a year ago. What changes can you make? I'm not saying DA needs to go. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. But let's not be naive and think that if this team bows out in the second round again and DA's playing like that, that they're not going to look at it. Because they're not looking to move Devin Booker or Kevin Durant. Right. I can tell you that. Right. Yeah, that was um, that was not a great start. Wolf here, we have the cut that you were talking about with DA too. It's gonna be a completely different team next game. Um, yeah, we're just gonna sit back. Um, we're gonna hold this L, but learn from it as well, and understand that this is this is playoff basketball, man. You get you get back home, get your ass kicked, and figure it out, and then hopefully what you learn put in put into the game. Yeah, you know, and it is. He's so honest and he's so right so much of the time. I'm just wondering why it always takes some type of beatdown to get his attention and to get his attention in terms of changing his intensity level or his sense of urgency. I just, to me, it's it's tiresome. It is. It bothers you. Well, you fatigues you. You had you had something over Denver in in the sense that if you go out there and win game one, it's like maybe something maybe there's just a bad matchup for Denver. It'd have been nice to hold that over them a little bit longer. Here's Monty Williams after the game. He can tell you it wasn't where it needs to be. And when you look at the film, uh, it wasn't as consistent. When he plays with force, everything else is you know, the table is set, if you will. And so he would probably say that he could ratchet it up three or four levels, but I think the whole team for the We all have a, a bit of personal disappointment. Because uh, when you play against the best team in the West, why would you not bring them? You know? So that that's probably the disappointment we all feel. Yeah. We'll get back into this in a little Man. bit. I mean, again, they lost the game as a team, but this idea that everybody could ratchet it up three or four levels, like Kevin Durant needs to not turn the ball over seven times. He never does, so I'm no. not worried he's going to keep doing that. Right. The guy had 29 points. He had three blocks. He had 14 rebounds. I don't know that you can go three or four levels up from that. That's you know right what I mean? Hard. Yeah, and and some of those turnovers were when the game was already over, too. I'm not excusing the turnovers, but let's not pretend that they expect, what, 60 and 20 from KD next hey, time? Try hard. That's all that matters. Try hard. And if you're a Suns fan, don't go look at that video that's out there on social media. Don't go look on uh, Cameron Cox's page either because he has a minute-long video of Stop just it, a variety of things that um, you actually probably should go watch it. Score the hottest ticket in town, Suns playoff tickets. Just text TICKET to 62620. Register and listen for your name this Wednesday during the 7 a.m., noon, and 5 o'clock hours for your chance to qualify for tickets to the Suns take on the Denver Nuggets. That's TICKET to 62620. We come back. Are you concerned by the lack of offense you saw from the Suns on Saturday, or maybe the defense. It's Wolf and Luke on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Arizona Sports, the home of Phoenix Suns basketball. Suns playoff coverage presented by Michelob Ultra. Wolf and Luke talk Suns Nuggets now. Okay, it's easy to get lost in the numbers after one game. I get that, but I'm going to throw some at you anyway here, Wolf, because there were some 
There were some that really stood out. I'm not even talking about individual numbers, but more just as a team. Uh, the Suns in the game get out rebounded 49 to 38. Run for your lives. Offensive rebounds were 16 to 8 and I actually, for Denver. And I actually think some of these ended up a little bit closer than they were when the game was, you know, like yeah. the garbage time kind of right. made these numbers look better for the Suns than they actually were. The horror of it all. <laughs> the steals 14 to 4 in favor of uh, Denver. The Suns turned the ball over 16 times to Denver's 10. But this is the one that these two really get me. The Suns had a better shooting percentage than Denver. The Suns shot 51.2% and lost by 18. But they took 17 less shots and they took 14 less threes. They made nine less threes. So that right there is 27 points right there. Just Denver from the three-point line. And because they were getting so many offensive rebounds and the Suns were turning the ball over, they basically had 17 more chances to score in the game. Yes. Um, I wrote this down I, as I was watching the game and the smoke was settling in the compound on Saturday night. I, lo- I wrote down um, the Suns lost this game because of turnovers, rebounding, and defense. <laughs> That's it. That's what I wrote down right there. And and just watching it, the rebounding part makes me want to start swinging. It, it does. And it's because it's like lining up in a football game and getting buried at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. It is. That, that is the, the closest analogy I have to watching somebody dominate you on the glass. And it drives you nuts. And you're just looking, who, who, who's going to come and save this team? Who's going to come and help this team? Who's going to be that guy that's going to throw back the shoulders, move with a, a purpose, and rebound the basketball? Rebound the basketball! Rebound that basketball! Okay, it seemed a little corny to do it right there, really, because I am angry. Just a different tone. It, 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 it does bother me, but they have to change those things right there. Take care of the ball and rebound the basketball and play better defense. The, uh, the sentiment of needing to play better defense to maybe get your offense going is uh, one shared by Kevin Durant. This is from practice yesterday. Oh, man, if you look at our numbers, we shot over uh, 60%. 50, 50% from the field, 55% from the field. Uh, offensive stuff, like, we, can, we can figure that out. I think defensively and the little things with the boards and just game plan discipline is what we should really be focused on every day. As offensively, we can figure it out. It's a free-flowing, unpredictable game anyway to play off. So, you know, you get stops, that's better offense anyway. So, we, we just trying to figure out how to, what we need to do on the defensive side of the ball. The thing that was getting frustrating watching that game is, is so Denver is clearly better defensively, and Kevin Ray brought that up earlier when we had him on. It, it was clear watching the game. Denver is be- much better defensively than they were two years ago, and don't tell me that's just because of Jamal Murray, because it isn't just because of Jamal Murray. But when the Suns would get a stop, Denver would just get the offensive rebound. And so now you're looking at a Suns team. If you go back to Game 5 of the Clippers series, they've given up 255 points in their last two games. You see how big it is for them to get stops. See? When, when, when Aaron Gordon's not missing a shot, and Jamal Murray, <laughs> it, he, it felt like he had 54. He only, only had 34. When you are able to actually get a stop, you have to get the rebound when you get the stop. Yes, and that's the whole thing, though. Once again, we could talk about offensively for the Phoenix Suns, and you know they gotta they gotta take more threes. Yeah, you're right. They gotta take more threes. But I give Denver a lot of credit 
for how they played on the perimeter. I thought they did a decent job of challenging a lot of the shots. Uh, Denver was, I mean... I'm hoping that was the best game we see Denver play all series. It was like they were inviting the Suns to take their mid-range shots. They were trying to run them off the arc, I thought, especially in that second quarter. It's one of the reasons why the Suns um, scored as many points as they did in the paint. Think about it. They actually, the Suns scored, I think it was plus 12 in the paint. For the Phoenix Suns. And it wasn't like DeAndre Ayton was going off. No, he was not. He was not going off. So what What? What does that mean? That means they're up on the perimeter. They're up in your face defending the arc. You're putting the ball on the ground, taking it to the rack a lot of the time. Isn't that right, D-Buck? So, to me, um, defense, I, I, that's the first thing I think of in regard to why the Phoenix Suns lost this game. And it, it, it angers me. The Denver Nuggets played better defensively than the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, they did. And and now to get to that three-point conversation, uh, this part of it, you know, you, you don't want to change who you are. I get that. But if you just go by three-pointers attempted in in the uh, in the playoffs, the Suns are averaging 23 and a half a game. That is 16th of the 16 teams that made the playoffs. Now that's attempts, that's not makes. Their actual their their three-point uh percentage is fifth among the 16 teams. They just don't take a lot of threes. And that's fine, but if you're not if you're going to give up 255 points over two games, you're going to have to shoot more threes. If you're not if you're going to allow Denver to get offensive rebounds, if you're going to allow certain guys to be wide open at the point where they're going to put up 125 or 130 points, you're just going to have to shoot more threes because we just saw it on Saturday hitting basically 52% of your shots if they're all twos isn't going to work if you're giving up 125 points because you're not getting enough shots. Here's uh, Devin Booker after the game on Saturday. Uh, yeah, probably just, you know, second-guessing our reads. Um, you know, just not playing the type of basketball that we play. I mean, we have to get more up, more threes, but more shots in general. Um, you know, like I said, they shot the ball. We shot 51% from the field. We just didn't get enough of them. Shoot 51%, you should win. Yeah, you know, it just bothers me right there. It does. It bothers me so much when you you have to sit there and talk about how you're scoring the basketball, how you're doing it. It it bothers me. You shot 51% from the field. And that should be a win. It's hard to shoot that well. It's it's. Now, all of a sudden, yeah, we've got to take more threes. What, is that going to be in your head now? We've got to take, no, you know what you got to do? Be better on the defensive end of the floor. Well, that's what KD was saying. I, I know. Yeah. But but I guess what I'm saying is to have any type of conversation as to how you're going to score the basketball on the other end when the bigger problem is your defense, it, the point is moved. Well, that that's where this becomes a fine line you have to walk because you're attempting 23 and a half threes a game. That's 16th of the 16 playoff teams. But that's who you are. The Suns are not a three-point liver, liver die by the three. So, to your point, if you could just play better defense, you don't have to change who you are offensively. But if you're not going to play better defense, you're going to get in a position where the Suns are hoisting up a bunch of threes. And then that leads to another question of, who do you really trust on the Suns to make a bunch of threes? <laughs> like, I trust KD to make them. KD. Chris Paul, if he's on that day. Devin Booker, okay. Book. 
but I mean, then at that point, you need guys off the bench. So you need Damian Lee to come in and hit four or five threes. Terrence Ross going off when he hasn't played. But he will have to play more than three minutes. The simpler solution is to play defense instead of try to change your offensive identity against the Denver Nuggets. And part of the defense is the rebounds. And since we're talking about that as well, how about campaign? More campaign? I, I, their lack of faith in campaign right now <laughs> makes it hard for me to have a lot of confidence in them. Uh, text us your thoughts to the FanDuel text line at 620-620 right now. When we come back, what is Kellen Olsen's confidence level heading into Game 2 against the Nuggets? We're going to ask our own son's guru next. It's Wolf and Luke on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. I can see you out there, Kellen. I've talked to like 19 basketball people in three hours. Arizona Sports. Our son's mega mind, Kellen Olsen, joining Wolf and Luke to talk about the Phoenix Suns now. All right, he's joining us on the Arizona Sports Line because he is in Denver calling in. He was obviously there for game one and he'll be there for game two tonight. Kellen Olsen, our own Phoenix Suns guru, is joining us. Kellen, what's going on, man? What's up? I went to hockey, Luke. Are you proud of me? That was a pretty good game Ooh. to go to last night, too, huh? Oh, my gosh. What a heartbreaker. Like, two terrible, fluky goals to give up and then losing. Like, oh. And then having Awful. a goal called back, too. <laughs> yeah, so so take that. On, was that a challenge? Did they challenge that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a challenge. All right, do you want to talk about the Bruins collapse, too, or should we talk about the Suns? Well, I'm down for either. I, the I, Bruins. I, let's talk about the Bruins collapse right <laughs> now. As a, as a Sabres fan, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's just and to the Florida Panthers as well. You gotta be kidding me! All right, we have to talk about the Suns. We we cannot we okay. cannot sidestep this. I want to ask you this to start things off, Kellen. Um, that felt like watching on TV that Denver had been waiting for that revenge game for two years, and yet I've heard that the crowd was just kind of yeah. Uh, so, what was the vibe like in in Ball Arena for that game? It was loud for sure. I mean, I was like I was joking there. I, I did attend Game Seven for. They had different stakes, of course, but it was way louder in there. And everything that I've heard from people here is that it's more of a football and a hockey town than it is a basketball town. It was still a really good environment, though. Don't get me wrong. It's not like it was like, oh, wow, are they treated? Is this really not like the playoffs? Uh, they were up for it for sure. But it, yeah, there was like a, a, a decent amount of like booing at Booker already. They, they don't like him a lot. There was the, the Amir Coffee game last year. There was the playoff series two years ago. He always plays well there. So. There's a little bit of there, but yeah, I, did, I didn't sense a, a ton of like crazy, crazy uh, environments, and maybe this series won't happen until the latter stages because I know every game in Phoenix is just going to be the fans nervous out of their minds more than loud. <laughs> you ready for this question right here, Killer? This is going to be good right here. Why did the Suns lose Game One, and what do they have to do to not lose tonight? Math, Wolf, uh, it just comes down to math. A, a possession battle and just field goal attempts and having more. Uh, bites at the apple, however you want to phrase it, is such a huge part of the league today. If you look at the stat sheet and you see that another team has taken 8, 10, 12 more shots than the other team and we're, we're in the mid-second quarter, mid-third quarter, that other team has to be winning, and they probably are winning by a good amount just because, again, bites at the apple. And by, the, uh, by halftime, Denver had taken 15 more shots. And how that happens is offensive rebounds and turnovers. And the Suns were not doing their job well in either of those departments so now you kind of look back to game one and look ahead to game two it's this interesting thing because i think that the nuggets did a lot right and the suns did a lot wrong 
But I do think everything still from this game does come back to that because uh, Nikias Duncan of the Dunker Spot podcast tweeted out the stat that on a points per possession basis, the Suns were scoring more than the Nuggets through three quarters on possessions that didn't have turnovers. So the Suns' offense was more efficient, actually, through three quarters when you just took out turnovers, offensive rebounding, like things like that, all the, all the math stuff. So that was in the Suns' favor, and, and, and with the way they didn't move the ball, with the way that the small ball lineups uh, hurt them and, and all the kind of stuff that went wrong on the bench, it just goes back to the math. So if we're looking at a game here, third quarter, and the shot attempts aren't in a crazy direction one way or the other, that's when we can start to look at other stuff. But you really can't look past that in basketball. No, you can't. And, and you're right. I mean, that really was, was on full display on Saturday. We're talking to Kellen Olson. Uh, when you look at, at some of the bigger stuff, I guess, uh, just across that game, the, you know, the, the rebounding, the kind of a shaky defense, the thin bench, the, you know, they don't take nearly as many threes as Denver. All, all these different things that worked against them. Jamal Murray playing out of his mind. Is, is there anything that stands out to you as, as maybe the most easily fixable thing for the Suns tonight? The threes, but it, but they have proven so far in this postseason that it's a problem, but it just, it just shouldn't. No team does this anymore. Uh, the stat that I just tweeted is that the Suns have now attempted less than 25 threes in four games. The rest of the league combined in the postseason has done it three times. Every other team, take them all together, they've done it three times. The Suns have done it four times. Like that's a staggering difference in terms of the lack of volume that they're getting up. And that just goes back to playing the way that they're supposed to play with with ball movement, with all this stuff, because I think that conversations coming out of game one and coming out of the Clipper series and that are going to continue to come out of this playoff run for the Suns is just how they're this team that's like defying the league, zigging when everyone's zagging, doing all the mid-range stuff instead of taking shots at the rim and taking shots. They took threes a lot last year in the postseason still. They took threes at a decent rate two years ago as well. This wasn't really a problem. And then when you look for the source of it, it's the fact that they're still trying to implement Kevin Durant together and the fact that the ball move isn't really getting up to speed where it does because you need cohesion, continuity for that. And I know people hate simple solutions a lot of the time and they want to look for stuff that has real depth to it, but this really doesn't. It's just like they, they don't have the cohesion and continuity right now to trigger that ball movement. But I do think that they can find it in this game when they really do specifically focus on getting it moving, but then you try then you can't be overpassing and, and, and things like that. But yeah, the other parts of this, it, they, they should be correctable, but you mentioned Jamal Murray. Like, if Jamal Murray plays like that all series, the Suns are in a really, really difficult position, probably can't win this series, honestly, if he's playing like that. He was unbelievable. So what are your expectations for DeAndre Ayton tonight? How do you think he plays? I, I, expectations? I have no idea. If anyone has expectations for DeAndre Ayton, I, I, so expectations, I, I, I guess I phrased that wrong. I expect him to work as hard as Nikola Jokic, if not outwork him, because we've seen that before. That's what we should expect out of him. But in terms of what I expect, I have no idea. And I don't know how anyone reasonably could at this point because of just the game-to-game series to serious volatility with his play. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but he he did not play well in game one at all. I think the bare minimum standard for him is to work just as hard as Jokic. Like, you think about this, it's the back-to-back MVP Against DeAndre Ayton, who is like still a top ten center in the league right now, but if the if the back to back MVP is outworking the top ten center before you get to the fact that he's a much better overall player, you're in serious trouble. And look, Jokic is incredibly in shape and has a really long gas tank and, and can move better than people give him credit for, but he should never beat DeAndre Ayton down the floor. Not once, never. And he did it time after time in that game. He was beating him to loose balls. You look at the way 
that the Suns were playing a pick and roll. DeAndre's screens weren't great. He wasn't diving hard. And that's what Bonnie talked about uh, yesterday at practice is when he was asked about what does force mean for DeAndre. People think about force. They think about Shaq, two, two shoulders into him, right, and then dunking on him and pushing that bozo from the Knicks into the third row, right? Like, that's not the force that they're talking about. It's just set hard screens, sprint up and down the floor, crash the offensive glass, dive with intention. That's all they're asking for out of him is just the effort and the energy because, as Monty put it, like the table is set after that. And he's completely right. All they need him to do is the energy stuff and he'll be okay. But if he's not doing it, they're in a, they're at a tremendous disadvantage in this series in, in particular. Kellen, are, are you concerned at all? I, I mentioned this to Kevin Ray earlier that that game on Saturday was the first time the Suns have looked really top heavy. Are you concerned that they're they're going to be asking too much of Devin Booker and Kevin Durant in this series, or is, are you fine with it because that's the way they're constructed? No, because this is what they this is why they did it. They did it to have that second star, and they knew what the price of it was going to be, and they knew that they were only going to go as far as their two best players. And I do think that. I, I was on a, a Denver show earlier today, and they were talking about how, like, well, you guys get, get 30 from Booker, 30 from Durant, but you don't get anything from anyone else. But, I mean, how would you guys rate those Booker and Durant performances? Like, C minus? C? C plus? <laughs> yeah. They, they were pretty good. I thought Durant was great, but he had the seven turnovers. I thought that defensively he wasn't really that great. And then Book was fine. He was it was it was a low tier performance for him considering his playoff pass and then the precedent that he set there. So I think those two guys have a load of improvement to do after game one and I'm expecting at least one of them to have like a signature game of the playoffs tonight. Like I I think that the stage and just the kind of the way that it's set and how they how they've always had the mentality of not losing two in a row, how they knew coming in like you want to win every game of course, but like they're looking at it and I'm sure if they win tonight they're gonna say like we split in Denver. That's that's what we came here to do. We're good to go. And someone, one of those two is going to step up big. It's just a matter of if everything else around them is working as well. Kellen, great stuff as always, man. Thank you for the Thanks, time. Kellen. Enjoy the game. Thanks, guys. All right. That's Kellen Olsen joining us from Denver right there as the Suns are, uh, I'm not going to say it's a must win because it's one, they're, they're down 1-0 in the series, but it's a game they need to have tonight. It'd be a lot, be a lot easier to uh, win this series if you take a split in Denver. I, I hate, we'll get into this later on, Wolf. I, I, have hated since I was a kid the idea that, well, the series doesn't start till the road team wins a game. Yeah. Okay, well, if you go home down 2-0 and you've been you've had it handed to you twice, the series has started. Something yeah. has happened, so it would be nice to win the game tonight. Uh, rock and Roll Hall of Famers, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, are heading to State Farm Stadium with special guests The Strokes May 14th. You can win a pair of tickets now by visiting the contest page on ArizonaSports.com. When we come back... What did we learn about the new Cardinals regime following the conclusion of the 2023 NFL draft? We'll discuss that next. It's Wolf and Luke on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. The world is a vampire. Wolf and Luke, Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. No one to turn that up. My young cross. Give me the eye black, Shane Conlon. Just give me the eye black so we can smear it on. Go out there and bury a full-grown man. Metaphorically speaking, of course. Bury him on the 50. (laughs) Or maybe you got buried. (laughs) Either way, give me the eye black and let me listen to a little Smashing Pumpkins, if you don't mind. Get 
going to throw this at you, Wolf, before we get deep into this segment. Did you see what the Pittsburgh Steelers did to us over the weekend? I wanted Joey Porter Jr., second pick of the second round. The, Sun, the, the Cardinals ended up trading out of that spot, but the Steelers did take Joey Porter Jr. one pick ahead. Yeah, I saw so that. I guess we'll never know. Yes. Uh, and then in the third round, I know you saw the Steelers take Darnell Washington one pick before the Cardinals, who again may not have taken him. Yes. But still, I know. What's going Do you on believe here? it? Honestly, oh my goodness, they got a steal. They took the player that each one of you and I wanted after day one. Yes. I wanted Joey Porter Jr. You wanted Darnell Washington. The Steelers took them both one pick ahead of the Cardinals. I know. Craig is just high-fiving everybody because they got Darnell Washington. Why wouldn't you? He's 6'7", 270 pounds, and has a dark heart, baby. Yeah, He's you know what? I'll Steelers take, pick, too. Honestly, right now. And the guy can catch the ball as well. It's not like he's a great receiver. Not like he's a great athlete. Of course. I don't care. He's a football player. They're going to be able to get an 11 personnel, the Pittsburgh Steelers, one back, one tight end, three wide, and run it down your face because of that dude. Man, I... I, It just feels like a Mike Tomlin player. So does Joey Porter Oh, it does. Yeah, they got two physical, physical dudes. And they already have Fryermuth at tight end anyway to be the the guy who's going to get all the yards. So, I don't know. That that was two players, though, that it was watching for after day one. And it was like, hey, look, oh, the Steelers took Joey Porter. Okay, oh, look, the Steelers took Darnell Washington. All right, well, we'll just never have Max Starks on the show again then. No, it's just going to be, man, they're going to destroy people. Uh, Overall, you brought this up a little bit earlier when we were going to break. Some things that we learned about this regime through one draft now. And, you know, we talked about this last week going into the draft. At least for me, I learned nothing about Monty Austinfort during free agency because the Cardinals don't, they're not, they weren't really active in free agency. They added some players that, yes, you could say are on an NFL roster, but that's because the Cardinals went out and signed them. Like, you you couldn't take anything from uh, from free agency this year with Monty Austinfort, but the draft... We don't know how these players are going to turn out, but the fact that he was in control and after that tampering thing that, that could have thrown a lot of people off to start the uh, the draft, he really recovered and went the other way. And was, I mean, wheeling and dealing the entire weekend, which is, I think, a great sign for them. Yeah, there were three things that I wrote down in regard to this, Luke. What did we learn about the new regime? What did we learn about Monty Austin Ford and Jonathan Gannon? What did we learn about what they value based on audience? And to me, just watching them over the three days... The the very first thought I had was Monty has a little riverboat gambler in him. <laughs> he does. He's got a little gambler in him right there. The second thing was they will draft for need. And the third thing is they value picks going forward right now. I don't know if it's always going to be like that, but going into this first draft, those were the three big takeaways that I had. Monty is a little riverboat gambler. That's first and foremost. The moves that he made, he, he, he rolled the dice. And he was good. Doesn't it feel like that's probably something that came up during his interview? Can't you see the Cardinals interviewing GMs and being like, okay, look, we want to put more of an emphasis on the draft and having multiple picks, not not giving away picks and, and developing those picks and building through the draft. And he, if that's what you were looking for, I mean, you've, if, generally speaking, when you make big changes, you want the exact opposite of what you just had, right? We don't know how these players are going to turn out. You and I were talking during the break. I like the idea of B.J. Ojolari because that's an all-SEC first-team player and 
the SEC tends to be a pretty good Two-time conference. captain. Yeah, but but we don't know how the players are going to turn out, but the fact that the Cardinals are clearly putting an emphasis, it shows a realization that they, they're not going to outsmart everybody with these like under-the-radar moves. They got to build through the draft, yes. and they have set themselves up, especially next year, with 11, 11 picks to do it next year. Yeah, um, you know, his move out of three, there they are, the Arizona Cardinals sitting at number three, he moved down to 12, then back to six in order to secure the best offensive lineman in the draft. That was brilliant to me. And then moving back to 41 to collect more draft capital and still get a good edge rusher, that was downright erudite. That was, to me, that that was beyond brilliant. When when you consider all the moves that Monty made to secure more players than he had picks going into the draft, and the payload of picks for 2024, Monty seems to be all about the deal. All about the deal. All about the odds, and all about the risk, and all about the deal. A little riverboat gambler. Monty Austin Ford, to me at least. Well, that's that's what you can do as a GM. I mean, they they ended up adding Houston's first round pick in, in 2024, Houston's third round pick in 2024, uh, the Lions' third round pick, which is originally Tennessee's, the Eagles' fifth round pick. I believe they have a compensatory pick thrown in there, uh, maybe as well. But so that adds up to as it stands right now, um, eleven picks that you have in next year's draft, and and again, you've got. Two first-rounders that could be top five. Now, you know, I, I don't like the idea of going into the season being like, hey, I hope we're you know in one of the five worst teams so we have another top five pick. I'm sure they're not <laughs> approaching it that way, but that, that's not no. how I'm going to approach the season. But I don't that's mind. Right, the, they already got a top five pick. That's what I was say. I don't mind watching Houston every week and being like, hey, Houston <laughs> lost nice. <laughs> Here's a pair of shorts. Go ahead and slide them up. Okay, good. By on. the way, that makes that third-round pick better, too. <laughs> I love the way you're laughing, Luke. <laughs> this is, this is um, all I have at this point with football. Right. So they will draft for need. That is number two. Mm-hmm. They will draft for need. Going into the draft, four of the biggest five positions on the team were offensive line, edge, corner, wide receiver, and defensive line. <laughs> they, they had five real big positions of need right there. And the Cardinals picked an offensive tackle, an edge player, a corner, and a wide receiver in their first four picks. Yeah. Okay? I mean, think about that. They had nine players drafted in this draft. Seven of them play the four positions of need, the four biggest positions of need coming into this draft. Premium positions, too, which was a, a criticism of them in the past, where it was like, oh, you're just kind of taking an inside linebacker each year or whatever. Whatever you wanted to say in the past, they took two offensive linemen and they took two corners in this draft in addition to what you were saying with the edge and the receiver and a defensive tackle at yep. the end. So they, again, it's one draft. None of these guys have played in the NFL yet, but but you can't you can't look at any other team and say, well, those guys are going to be better either because none of their guys have played in the NFL yet either. And so the framework that the Cardinals laid out there was, I said this earlier, I'll say it again, it was it was refreshing to see how Monty Austin Fort navigated this draft. Yes, that was the biggest plus, my biggest takeaway of this draft. They only had two draft picks that weren't really positions of need. Of course, Clayton Toon, the quarterback from Houston, and linebacker Owen Popo from Auburn right there. Now, 
Who knows? Maybe that is going to be a position of need based on what they're going to do with Isaiah Simmons or Zayvon Collins, how much they might have him moved out. I really don't see Popo being a Mike backer at all. You can't be. Not at 225 pounds, right? So I don't really see it being that. But anyways, in the, the third takeaway was the value of picks. My favorite move of the draft by Monty Ossenford was the trade with the Tennessee Titans on day two, where he traded number 96 for picks 122, 139, and 168. Basically, you had a fourth and two fifth rounders, Mm -hmm. a fourth and two fifth mid-round picks right there. The 96 pick, that was a late third round pick, but it was a third round pick. But I still consider third round a mid round pick. Three to five is what I consider. Especially late third. Late third's almost a fourth. Exactly. So to me, I thought you get three mid round picks at the price of one. I liked what he said earlier. I left that draft cautiously optimistic for the first time in a while with this team. I liked what he said earlier, and we'll we'll get back into this later on the show, where he was talking about all the trades. And he said, but sometimes there were trades that that didn't work for us because we liked a player that was on the board, basically. I, I like, I like that it, you go in with a plan, but you're willing to adjust on the fly. Yes. Okay, there's not a player there I necessarily want at 96. I'd rather have three more picks a little bit further down because we're not we're not close to winning yet. So let's stockpile. But if there was a guy you liked at 96, take him. You're yes. not so st- you're not stuck to this like regimented plan of we have to trade for more picks. And I, and I I feel like he really he did a good job of navigating that. Uh, and and <laughs> the other thing is that's his first draft as GM too. All right, we come back. We'll take you through the top stories of the day with Wolf and Down Your Lunch. It's Wolf and Luke on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader.